Hi folks, it's Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas today with episode 606 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Tuesday, February 15th, 2011. And uh, I said yesterday we were going to go ahead and do a listener call show today. And we're not going to do that actually. I'm going to do that tomorrow for you. Um, I'm going to actually do a show today on permaculture design considerations is what I'm going to call today's show. And uh, this is really landscape design considerations for any, any any edible landscaping. Of course, I do all of my landscaping with uh, permaculture ethics and permaculture uh, design concepts. So that's the angle I'm going to come at it from. But the reality is whether you know what permaculture is or not, whether you care what permaculture is or not, if you want to grow edible things on your landscape, today's show is going to be good for you. And you can be practicing permaculture honestly after today without knowing it in some ways. Before we get into today's show, though, let's go ahead and take care of our uh, our housekeeping the way we always do. Start out with taking care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Uh, today's sponsor of the day number one, Sawtooth Tactical. I love Sawtooth Tactical. One, because the owner is one of the greatest people in the world that I've never never met. You know, I've only met him by email. Uh, never been able to shake his hand. Hope to do so someday soon. Amazing guy that always takes care of the customer and has some of the coolest tactical stuff out there. You know, the uh, tactical stuff. Everything from Maxpedition bags to Magpul magazines and more. Check out Sawtooth Tactical today for really cool stuff and really great service. Next up today is ready-made resources. Now, what more can you ask for from a company that their name of the company tells you what they have, what they do, and uh, how they do it? And that's what Ready-Made Resources does, because they provide all the resources you need for your prepping ready-made and ready to go. You pick them out, you select them on their website, you order them, and they ship them straight to your door. And you'll find everything you need there from advanced solar uh, photovoltaic systems uh, to long-term food storage to gardening tools and everything you can think of in between. So check out ready-made resources today. Uh, next up, I want to remind you guys we do have a forum. I think a lot of folks listen to this show have never been to our forum. It's worth going to the forum, setting up an account, making a few posts, and making a few friends there, even if you're not a heavy forum user. Even if you're not going to use the forum, you need to visit the forum, go to the forum, check out the threads. The amount of information there boggles the mind. With the search feature on the forum, and dedicating some time to doing some reading, you can literally get a PhD in preparedness on your own for free. That's what our forum has to offer. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You also get uh, discounts from 25 different vendors now, and I'm working on a few more for you. Some big ones recently we added were Seed Savers Exchange and Victory Seeds, uh, and we also have had high mowing for a long time. So those three might be places you want to check out after listening to today's show. There's 23 other vendors there, including if you want to buy Survival Podcast stuff from the Gear Shop, we now give you a discount to the Gear Shop. It was something we wanted to do for a long time. 
but it uh, required a fairly expensive software upgrade to be able to do discount codes. Uh, Tiffany and Rich have done that now with the Gear Shop, and uh, you get, if you're a MSB member, 10% off all Survival Podcast merchandise from the Gear Shop. Uh, so check that out. And they're also doing a point system now. Time you buy stuff, you get points. You get enough points, you get free stuff. That's pretty cool. I uh, didn't know they were going to be doing that. They let me know when they upgraded this, the uh, Gear Shop site uh, that they have that in place now. So check out uh, the Gear Shop and the MSB. Remember, the MSB is how I support the show. Actually, how you support the show. It comes out to about $0.18 cents an episode. So when you get done listening to today's show, if you think that was worth $0.18, cents, you haven't done so already, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. With that, let's go ahead and get into today's main topic. You know, as I said today, um, I planned on doing a listener call show. We're going to do one tomorrow, uh, but I wanted to do something a little bit different. I didn't really like the idea of backing up a uh, an email show like yesterday with a call show today and then another call show on Friday or Thursday, depending on how things work out with my trip to the bug out location. And it was just beautiful here yesterday. It was in the 70s. And uh, that's got me thinking about all the great stuff I can do on my property when I uh, finally get fully moved to Arkansas. I've got so many plans. I've got I've got trees even that I've been keeping in containers that I'm probably going to, since they're dormant, and I'll be up there enough after the next month when they come out of dormancy, I'm going to take them up there, give them a good watering, put them on the shady side of the house, and leave them up there with this next trip. And... Um, just all kinds of things about what I'm going to be doing to take my little five acres in the middle of the mountains, a place that only a maniac would farm, man. It's, you know, dry, sandy, silica-based soil and uh, rocks and a little bit of a harsh environment. And I don't have the greatest uh, greatest use of solar uh, radiation energy because of the mountains that are there. And I'm kind of on a plateau between two other mountains, so it takes longer for the sun to get up in the morning. You know, why do I do that? Well, because, and this is the big thing I want you to understand, Permaculture was designed to make use of land that otherwise um, was not good for agriculture. It's really what it was designed to do originally. Uh, Bill Mollison looked at all the places where they'd already farmed and ruined the land. So we can, we can save this land, we can heal this land, we can make it productive again. And he looked at all these places around the world where land was cheap and inexpensive. And But nobody wanted it, and the reason it was cheap and inexpensive was nobody could make anything productive out of it. Unless you were going to build a factory there or something, as far as agricultural things, the land really just didn't have much going for it. And that's why it works really well in small backyards as well. Because it was designed to deal with any problem, and take the problem and turn it into a solution. So that you can take any piece of land anywhere in the world and make it productive. And I do mean anywhere. One of uh, Bill's uh, followers, disciples, uh, progeny, I don't know what you would call him, but one of the most active people in permaculture today is Jeff Lawton. And Jeff Lawton did a, a project in the desert, about 10 miles from the Dead Sea. And there's a video on YouTube called Greening the Desert. I'll link to it for you guys today. And... Uh, Greening the desert really was one of the first things that opened my eyes to permaculture. It's something that's, I think, done it for a lot of people. So they're 10 miles away from the Dead Sea. The land is completely salted. Uh, the goats have literally, all the little goat farmers have been running their goats across this land over and over again. The way Jeff describes it is the goats were literally like maggots eating the earth. Anything vegetative they would, they would just eat and consume. Less than uh, 10 inches of rainfall, true desert environment. Anybody farming there is farming under plastic, spraying herbicides and pesticides and fertilizers. 
Well, they take a contingent out to the middle of this desert environment, and they turn it fertile in six months. They have plants growing that shouldn't grow because the land has been too salty for them to grow, and yet they're growing and they're producing. They have these figs, and the fig trees in six months are producing figs. And the people from the university tell them that it can't be done. It, it can't be done at all. It, it, the, the land is salted. And they say, well, you better come out here and test our soil and see what we've done. Because no matter what you say, we planted fig trees six months ago, and now there's figs on the trees. So they came out, they tested the soil, and they figured when they saw it, they said, okay, we know what happened. You guys use so much water that you've washed the salt deeper into the soil. And the problem with that is every time you do it, what you've washed down gets closer to the top, and eventually you can destroy the land forever by washing the salt through. And that's what's been done in a lot of places out there. They wash the salt through, but eventually it builds up and it completely destroys the land. But when they tested the soil, they found something interesting. The salt wasn't gone. Instead of washing it through, they'd actually hydrated the land through the use of something called the swale, and through uh, the berms on the other side of the swales, and heavy mulching and drip irrigation. They used far less water than anybody else would, but the land actually was hydrated. And the land hydrated to a point where nature could take over, the way she always does if we let her, and help her, and it literally made the salt become inert. It was there, but it was no longer affecting the plants, and the plants were able to deal with it and start to heal and put down a new layer of topsoil. And if you want the rest of it, you can go watch Greening the Desert, and you can go watch a follow-up, 30-minute follow-up to the five-minute video about how when they left, eventually the government just let the whole thing go back, and yet things are still growing there, even though it's been completely abandoned and abused. But the reason I tell you that story is to make clear my claim and to make sure that you understand that no matter what you think you're dealing with, when it comes to growing your own food and you think, I can't do it, it's impossible, if they could do it 10 miles from the Dead Sea on a 10-acre on a plot of land in the middle of the desert where the land was literally salted into infertility, where it had the land and the vegetation had been consumed to nothingness down to the roots by herds of goats. Wherever you are, these same solutions will work for you. And I've done a lot of shows on permaculture, and you may want to listen to some of them if you've never heard them before. Uh, shows where I talk about design, design principles instead of considerations as we are today. Layers and zoning and, and all of the things that, and ethics, the ethics of permaculture. And um, I've done a lot of shows about different plant types and things like that. You may want to listen to those as well. But I think that what's been missing is what I'm talking about today. And I've talked about these aspects layered in, but I've never really put them all together. So hopefully you'll get a lot out of what you can do to make your land productive today. So when I say a consideration, what am I talking about? Well, give you some of the items on my list so that you got the right frame of mind as we begin to go through them. I'm talking about things like climate. What's the climate like? What's the slope on your property. What are the energy patterns on your property? Energy patterns may seem like some kind of new age hippie thing. No, no I mean solid concrete energy patterns. Prevailing winds. You know, where does the sun, how does the sun rise and set in the summer versus the winter? Where is your shade? Where is your open sunny areas? 
Uh, the energies that are around you are primarily wind and sun. And we want to know, do we want to invite them in or keep them out? That type of thing. How much land do you have? What, what's your desire? What is your desired output? What do you want from your land? And if it's as much as I can get, you're not thinking right. We'll get to it when we get to the point. Uh, we will talk about zones and layers today. And how they affect you based on the other considerations like climate, slope, and total land area. Uh, we're going to talk about how long it takes to develop your property. How long you have to develop your property. Do you need it to be developed in two years? You're going to have to take a very different approach than if you have a 10-year plan. And your time to maintain your property. Do you have 10 hours a week to devote to working on your property, or five, or two? And what is the availability of water on your property? Both its natural availability and, and your, your plumbed availability, we'll call it, your irrigation capacity. And how do you maximize that? These are the things that we're going to talk about today. And as we do, I don't want them to just be ethereal concepts that you think about like, oh, that's an interesting idea, a philosophical concept. I want you to come up with concrete ways that you can utilize them to design your property. Because the big problem that people have when they start gardening and trying to grow food on their property, and it doesn't matter if it's a tenth of an acre in the city or ten acres in the country, is they just start doing stuff without thinking. It's a sunny spot, it'll be good for a garden. But we don't think. How far is it from my current irrigation source? And what other irrigation source could I create for it? How far is it from my front door? If it's really far from my front door, it's out of the way, but that means I'm not going to take care of it as much. If it's just there's an empty space, so I'm going to plant a tree here, well, how big will that tree get? If I look at my energy patterns, how will it affect my prevailing winds in summer, winter, fall, and spring? How will it affect my solar energy radiance? What's near it? What else do I want to do in that area? These are things that generally small home growers just don't think about. And what I'm hoping is that by the end of today's show, you're going to be able to sit down with a notebook and some graph paper and instead of just throwing stuff on your property, actually design it. And designing is an evolving, continuous, growing, changing process. That doesn't mean that you have to have a concrete final design. But if you have concrete final objectives with a design that aims to meet them, as you make changes and adapt, the things that you want to change will be easier to change, and the things you can't change they're going to be a hell of a lot easier to deal with. And one thing I just feel like I need to say again today, and I always say this, it seems, when I talk about growing your own food, but for those of you that may not have heard previous shows, it's so important to me that you understand this. This is the single most revolutionary act you can take. I got an email from someone yesterday when I was talking about guerrilla gardening and the impact that it could have, and he was a very pessimistic person, and he kind of annoyed me. He also defended that Stansberry jackass. You can listen to yesterday's show if you want to know my thoughts on Porter Stansberry. Um, but he said, you know, if we gave out seeds here in America, people would just eat the seeds and wouldn't grow them. And I said, you know, I'm sorry that you think only you, me, and three other people are actually capable of doing anything important and that matters and that we actually have ethics and something to that effect. Basically, obviously, it's only like a handful of us. There's not millions of people out there that want to make a difference. 
See, and I think there are millions of people that want to make a difference. I think all over America, I mean, we can see it in the political activities like the Tea Party. And in the, 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 the left wing and the right wing um, groups as well. They want to do something, but they either have believed in a false idol... The, the, you know, the, the guy with the D is better than the guy with the R. The guy with the R is better than the guy with the D. When all of them just really want to get elected, and they put whatever letter after they makes them most likely to get elected at the current time and the current location where there's an opportunity to run, and that's really what it comes down to for most of them, to the people that want an alternative, you know, something better. People that, you know, like me that support Ron Paul. Or the Tea Party or that says, I'm not a conventional Republican. I want something different. We see it when we talk to people throughout our country, throughout the world, when we talk about issues that are important to them and they want change and they want something different. The big reason that people don't get more active, that people don't do more, isn't because they're lazy, isn't because they don't care. It's because they don't feel that what they do matters. See, the minute you take somebody, no matter how motivated, no matter how passionate they are, no matter what is important to them, and you make them feel that what they do doesn't matter, it neuters them, it weakens them, it places them into apathy, and they end up in a distant slumber where all they can think is, how can I make a little bit more money and have a little bit more stuff in my life? And then many people like us who have awakened to this reality turn and look at these people with disgust. And then we forget we used to be them. Now, I will in mass refer to them as sheeple sometimes. And then, you know, the touchy-feely, airy-fairy types get all upset with me. They are sheeple in a mass. And they move like sheep in a mass. And if you make them real upset... At the Republicans, you can put Barack Obama in power. And by spending the next two years making them real upset at Democrats, you can completely turn over the House with the biggest landslide ever because they move in a mass. But what we need to understand if we want to make a real difference in our world for the good, without trying to tell people how to think or what to think or what to believe, simply to improve things for everybody so that each man, woman, and child can go after their own dream, We have to understand that that mass is made up of individuals. And instead of trying to fight the billions of dollars that go into collectively moving the mass, we move the individual. We move the individual with action and empowerment by giving them things that they can do, that when they do them, they go, I have made a difference. Now, I know this may not be what you were expecting today. And we're 18 minutes in and I haven't really told you what to do yet. But if you don't understand why you're doing it, and if you don't understand how big of an impact it can have on your neighbor, you won't do it with real passion. And what I'm telling you is when you grow a few trees and you hand a bag of apples to an old lady, you do more for your community than calling anybody on the phone and yelling at them is ever going to do. And I'll leave it at that. So let's start talking about design considerations. The first big one is your climate. Whatever you're going to do is going to revolve around your climate because there's going to be certain things about your climate that you need to know. You need to know what is your average last frost date. 
And then you need to add about two weeks to that, and that's a pretty good date where you can believe that whatever can't freeze is going to be safe. About two weeks after your average last frost date. Nature will throw you a curve at times, but that's a pretty solid date. You need your average first frost date in the fall. And again, two weeks in front of that will put you pretty safe. That's going to give you your frost-free growing days. So if you're trying to grow something that's an annual plant, and it needs 130 days to mature, and you have a 90-day growing season, that doesn't mean you can't grow it, but it means you need to know that, because you either need to be starting it under protection of a greenhouse, or providing some sort of protection for it in the ground after frost begins. And there's some pretty cool ways to do this. Remember, I just had um, Clayton Jacobs on. And what he did was run some water tubing from a compost pile out to his raised beds and back to his compost pile. And there was a big coil of the tubing inside the compost pile. And as the, the water heated, it was pushed out through the beds and the cold water returned to the compost pile. And it created a passive loop. And then he threw basic row covers over his rows. And when he went out on cold mornings, his beds were lightly steaming. It means his plants were kept safe and his growing season extended. Not necessarily going to work in Idaho when it's you know 20 degrees below zero. But these are things you can do. But without knowing your climate, your first and last frost date, very difficult. And it takes other things into consideration as well. There's plants that are perennial, and that's what I think you should be focusing on with your permaculture. Your kitchen garden is fine, your herb garden is fine, but your main landscape development should be around trees, vines, bushes, and anything that will come back year after year. So some some herbs, if in the right climate, for instance. I haven't had to plant oregano in five years. Just keeps growing. I haven't had to plant sage in five years. It just keeps growing. I haven't had to plant rosemary in five years. It just keeps growing. I haven't really had to plant basil, even though it's an annual. Why? I get so much seed that it keeps it keeps reseeding itself. My climate allows for this. Does your climate allow for this? These are things you need to know. Things certain trees, like an olive tree. Zone eight. You need to know your USDA's climate zone. Zone 8, olives should be okay. Some people will tell you zone 7, which is a little bit cooler. Colder winters, shorter growing seasons. What's the difference? Well, it depends. Are you on the edge of zone 7 and zone 8, or are you on the edge of zone 8 and zone 9? There's, you know, A's and B's inside the zones. And then how much solar uh, exposure do you get to the area you're going to plant the olive tree? You might be in zone 7, right smack in the middle of it. Catalog says it won't work, but if you have a place that's constantly hit with sun, just constantly hit with sun, and I mean in the winter, in the summer, there's no shade there, and you build up a big bundle of rocks around the root system of your olive tree, and that solar gain hits those roots every day, you can effectively create a microclimate where you're in zone 8, even though the rest of your property is in zone 7. Because it's all about what the ground temperature is, the surrounding air temperature is. And again, by understanding things like your prevailing winds and blocking them or encouraging them at different times of year, you can change to microclimates. But it all starts out with your macroclimate. Where do you live? What's it like? 
And now, what microclimates can you create on it? We'll save that because when we look at energy patterns, we're going to really dig into that more. The next thing we need to look at, though, on our property, and it's the most overlooked thing by most home gardeners, is slope. Slope is usually just considered an annoyance. I just wish everything was flat. Then it would be much easier to deal with. And the reality is, slope is your friend. Our entire world revolves around energy. And energy is primarily used to move things. And, and even with heat, if I'm going to burn something, I want to move hot air into a cold space. If I'm going to cool something, I'm either pushing cool air into a warm space or pushing warm air out of a cool space. It always involves movement. And the one thing that slope will consistently move for you is the staff of life for all your plantings. Water. So understanding your slope is critical to everything else you're going to do with your design. Understanding not just your slope, because you look at your property and you go, okay, well, it's high here and low there, and my slope is generally in that direction. But even down to understanding and knowing what your contour lines are, And your contour lines are, if I start at any given spot in your yard, and I stay dead level, what? and I just start walking in a line, dead level, that line will almost never be straight. And even if you think your land is flat, it probably isn't. I'm going to tell you how to figure out your slope in just a second. But if I started walking in a straight line, and I was going to stay dead level, let's say I was at 313.2 feet, above sea level, where I'm standing. And I'm going to stay at exactly 313.2 every step I take. I'm going to make a curved, and probably curve and back curve line. And if I were to take little flags, like, you know, for sprinkler systems or marking utilities, and stick them in the ground, you would see this curving line run through your land until it went off your property line. And you could extend it out and go from one end of your property line to another, and the two places it exits might be 10 feet apart. But it might go out a big arcing circle. Or it might just go in a very minor arc straight across. You don't know until you check. Why do I need to know this? Because that will actually, if I figure out, let's say, contour lines every 20 feet on my property over 100 feet, then I'll actually know the nature of my slope and how water really moves off my property. And if I know how water moves off my property, I can keep water on my property, and I can make it take the longest Slowest, slowest path off. And if I do that, the maximum amount will hydrate the ground, just like they did in greening the desert. I can do this with slopes. I can do this with terraces. I can do this with swales. I can do this with berms. I can make basically a berm that becomes a swale, even without digging underground. But I have to know the slope. So what's the best, least expensive way to get accurate contour lines uh, for your property. Well, you go out and you buy a bunch of those little flags I talked about. And I'll tell you another way you could do this is a lot of times people have utilities marked and long after the work's done, these flags are laying all over the place and just left as trash and not picked up. You can go to, you can go take those. Don't go take them when they you know it's the guy just put them down. But when they're laying there rusty and the guy, you already saw that you pick those things up, you're doing a favor. You're getting rid of litter. The contract, I used to do that work. The contractors are supposed to remove them. They often don't. But they're dirt cheap. You can go to Home Depot and get, you know, uh, marking flags, a big stack of them for next to nothing. And then you need to build a level, a level to use on land. There's two main ones I know. One's called an A-frame, 
And I like it, but it's more work, and it's more materials, and it takes more effort to build. An A-frame is exactly what it sounds like. You build a frame that looks like an upside-down V, the, the, the vertical part of an A. And your two long pieces that come together at the top and form, a, form an A-shape need to be exactly the same length. And then somewhere between where the point comes together at the top and the two legs are at the bottom, there's going to be a large structure. You're going to want something that's about six feet at the bottom across. So I've got, just take your two hands, put your hands up like you're going to do two vertical karate chops, put the tips of your fingers together like an A, and that's the shape you want to make. And then somewhere maybe about two feet above the ground level, you want to make the A, the cross piece. And that cross piece will go from one to the other. And you can look on YouTube and see these things. Uh, you can look them up on some web links. I'll find some stuff where you can find them. But once you do that, you take the dead center of the top piece and you attach a string with a dead weight. You let that dead weight hang straight down to the ground. You let it go past your cross member. Then you get a carpenter's level and you go find a place that's dead level using a carpenter's level. Nice, you know, straight up bubble level. So you know the ground is level for six feet. You put the tips of your bottoms of your A-frame on those two points, and that'll give you a level line. Then you make a mark in that piece that goes across horizontally. Now, whenever you set those two pieces somewhere that's not level, the string will go to the side uh, that's a little bit lower. By simply moving it in a you know kind of in a radiating motion, when you line the string up with the line again, with that dead weight, you had a level point. You mark both points, you move to the second point, and you do it again. You do it again, you do it again, and you do it again. And what you end up with is you put your little markers in the ground is a dead level contour line. Another way to do it, and less expensive and easier, and easier to use by yourself, is to make a water level using two of those plastic tent stake or plastic um, fence stakes just the cheap ones they sell for a couple bucks and they have a little flat spot on the bottom okay I like it like where you put your foot to shove them in the ground and then they're about four foot tall after that and they're used to put in little plastic garden fences and things like this so you buy two of those and you need two cheap yardsticks you can buy these for less than a buck at Home Depot as well you put the yardstick so that it touches exactly where that flat spot is and you attach it to your stake. Then you get a piece of, you know, half inch, three quarter inch clear tubing that will allow you to take and, and, and attach it to each stake and leave about six to eight feet in between the two stakes. So basically you've got two stakes, each with a, a, um, a, a yardstick attached to it, and then zip tied to each stake is a tube. A clear tube that goes all the way up to the top of the yardstick on both sides. Whenever you're going to use it, you fill the tube with water so that it will come a little bit more than halfway up both stakes when they're on a level surface. If you're smart, you add some kind of coloring to the water. It'll make it easier to see, like some, a few drops of red food coloring color the whole thing. Now you take your first stake, you put it in a spot in the ground that you want to start your level point from. You shove it all the way until that flat spot is exactly at the top of the ground level. You take your other stake, you go out where you think it's level, you push it into the ground. You look at where they both measure out. If they both say 30 inches, you're dead level. If one side is higher than the other, you move the secondary side until you get the water level. 
Now you mark your points, you leave the, the second one in the ground, that's why it's easier to do alone. You pull the first stake out of the ground, you go to the other side of it, and you just keep leapfrogging. And either way, in the end, as long as you mark each point, you can get every contour line determined at every interval you want on your property. And now you know the exact slope of your property. And you can now move and control water throughout your property. Exactly how you do that, a little bit too deep for today. But I wanted you to know at least how to gauge the slope and to get it. And once you have that, you can sit down with graph paper, you can measure your property, and you can literally graft your slope angles by measuring a few points and assigning you know, each cube in the graph is a foot or a yard or a meter or whatever you want it to be. And you can get a complete diagram of your slope of your property that way. And that would allow you to do things like go in and take one of your, your lines and just basically dig a ditch straight on that line. Now you've got a swale. You take all of the dirt you take out of that and you put it on the back side of that swale, the downside of that swale. You plant in it. The water will flow into that ditch and it will stop dead. And it will slowly backfill the whole ditch And instead of running off your property, it will seep into the ground. It will be absorbed by the berm on the back side. And whatever the berm can't absorb will continue to flow through your property underground. And with multiple swales, start at a high point and then allow that water to sill over to the next one, to the next one. You can hydrate land with very little rainfall and reduce your irrigation to almost nothing. We added something like hugel culture, which you'll listen to the Paul Wheaton interview to learn more about that. We can almost eliminate irrigation needs anywhere in the world with those two concepts put together. The next one we have to look at is energy patterns. Energy patterns are critical and they're often ignored. And like I said earlier, the two big ones are wind and rain. But water's an energy pattern as well, but we just talked about slope, and that's the main way that water exists as an energy pattern. That's why I talked about slope first. Once you understand your slope, Instead of just going, that's a low spot, this is a high spot, you know what you can do about that energy pattern, because that's what the energy patterns are all about. I have a very sunny area. It gets sun all the time. I can do a lot of things with this. One is I can plant things there that need the sun. Two is, maybe it's too intense, the sun there. So I can put in a structure or a planting that can create partial shade, because it's excessive. So whenever it comes, or I have an area that's very, very shaded, do I need to prune a tree or remove a tree or remove a structure? And, and the answer is always based on the simple question, do I want to invite this energy in? Is it sufficient the way that it is? Or do I want to push it out? Those are your three options. Leave the energy pattern as it exists, encourage it further, or discourage it. So the big thing we need to add to our design of our property is where is our sun in, sp in spring, summer, winter, and fall? How high in the sky it is and what pattern does it take? And what kind of shadows does it cast? You'll find that your sun has an entirely different shadow map in December than it does in June. Much different. And if you're growing in December, it's highly important that you know this. If, even if you're not growing, if you're wintering over perennials, trees that are maybe marginal for your, for your, your zone, you're going to want them to be in a place where the ground is warmed heavily in the winter, even if they're dormant. 
to give them the best chance of, of, of emerging in the spring and continuing to grow, preventing massive dieback. So maybe even you have a, a tree, a fig for instance. If it's too cold, it will die back to the ground, but as long as you mulch the roots, it'll regrow and it'll have some productivity. But you would be better if you didn't have the dieback. Well, things like encouraging the energy from rock piles, solar exposure, and blocking prevailing winter winds are how you do that. So you need to map your prevailing winds and your solar activity and consider them in your design. Nothing's right or wrong when it comes to design. It's all based on your objectives. But you have to know what you're dealing with. Your slope and your energy patterns are two of the biggest ones. And unfortunately, in America today, other than, oh, that's a sunny spot, that's a shady spot, with most landscaping done in suburbia and even in rural areas, it's completely ignored. In fact, it might be worse in rural areas because the urbanite with a tenth of an acre or even a half an acre has to be more cautious about where they put things. Give a guy three or four acres and he just starts spreading crap out. I've got sun everywhere. But is there any efficiency in the design? That's, that's critical as well. Without asking these questions, we don't get critically developed and good design. The next thing we have to think about is total land area. If I have a tenth of an acre to work with, with my annual production, I'm not going to plant corn. It takes up too much space for too little yield. If I have a tenth of an acre to work with, I'm not going to plant a full-size apple tree. I could do it, but when it's fully grown 10 years from now, it's not even fully grown, but it's very mature 10 years from now, it will literally shade my entire yard. We're talking about a tree that can have a canopy width of 60 feet or more. So it just doesn't make sense. So I'd have one very productive variety of one thing, and that's not diversity, that's not good design. If I have a thousand acres to work with, then I can pretty much do anything I want, but I still have to think about how much effort and how much energy and how many resources are required. So I need to think very carefully about my locations of where I set things up, my zoning, which we'll talk about in a bit. You know, what's the stuff I want to work on every single day that's going to be intensely managed? Well, that's zone one. All right, now I'll leave the rest from there, but you can see how that goes. Too much land can be a problem And this is why we end up with people who just plow the whole thing out, set up irrigation, and make it in straight lines. And grow wheat. Hire a guy with a, with a harvester to come in at harvest season and, and see if we can make enough money to not lose the farm. With permaculture, we, re, we are required to think beyond this. And look at the size of the land and say, how do we create the most productive environment and the most diverse environment and the most stable environment, and the most environmentally responsible environment with every square yard of the property. And that means that our growth might be slow. We might eventually use the entire thousand acres. Now, some portion of it will stay wild if we do this right. Some por If it's all, it's a thousand acre field, 20 years from now, some portion of it, maybe a hundred acres, will be mature forest that we don't even touch. We may gather and hunt in it, but we don't really cultivate in it. It is its own place. We may set it in motion, but once it's in motion, we let it alone. It's the wilderness.
But we have to think about the size of our property. And when we're dealing with smaller properties, when it comes to our perennials, we want to think about the most space-conscious and most productive things we can we can grow. So that's where we want to espal our, our apples on a tree, on, on, on a fence. You know, that's where we want to grow things like grapes or a, a semi-dwarf plum that will produce just a, an abundance of fruit beyond our, most individual families' capability to use. So there's still some to share. There's still a surplus. Whether it's giving it away to a neighbor or selling it through consignment with a local farmer's market or whatever. It's up to you how you return your surplus. You guys know I have no problem with profit. Those that are in the permaculture world that have a problem with people making a profit didn't read the, didn't read the original work. The entire concept that Bill Mullison and David Holgram came up with, in spite of their many followers' attempts to, to just ignore this, is that if you're going to make permaculture successful, you need to make permaculture profitable. That you give a person a thousand acres and let them permaculture it, and five years later, the average farmer's probably making more money than they are. But 20 years later, the permaculturist is extremely wealthy and has to do very little work to maintain what he has. And he's literally created a system that can be handed down for centuries upon centuries to future generations. And that's the difference. You can spend your money today, you can invest it for tomorrow. You can spend your resources on your land today, or you can create a sustainable way for them to reinvest themselves. We have to look at the size of property. Very, very important as we're thinking about that. And if we want a, a, a large production on a small acreage, we need to think, some, think about things like kiwis with one vine producing 100 pounds for us. And realize we can grow kiwis from Florida to Alaska, literally. You can grow kiwis in Maine. There's a hardy kiwi species that's from Siberia. Grapes. Anything that uses vertical space with large levels of production needs to be a contender for your urban spaces. Just, you know, keep that in mind. What's your land area? How much production do you want? When you put something in there, you really need to think a lot harder when it's small property. I would never plant a red delicious apple tree, even a dwarf or semi-dwarf, in a small property. Why? Red delicious apples are available by the bushel, even organically, dirt cheap. So I'm going to be much more likely to plant a type of apple that's hard to come by. Even if I'm using true dwarfs, little four-foot trees. I'm going to plant a little mini orchard. I'm going to plant four varieties of apples that no one's even heard of. It's not just about my total yield. It's about a yield of something that's unique that I can't get anywhere else. I'm going to plant the things that are most adapted to my environment. Maybe I really like red delicious apples, but maybe they have a disease issue in my area. And maybe something like an Arkansas black or an Oshman's kernel apple is a lot more adapted to my location. And if so, that's what I need to grow. Not the stuff that's available everywhere that I can get for cheap that I can even buy from local providers or organic providers. I want to grow the things that are difficult to come by. The next thing I have to ask is, what is my real desired output? How much do I want? I think that you'd be surprised at how easy it is for a person with even a half an acre of land to five years into development of a system have a surplus that they have a difficult time dealing with. Now, maybe it doesn't provide all their food, 
But one only eats so many apples. One only eats so many peaches. One only eats so many grapes or pears. So in the end, not everything I plant needs to be a productive variety. Some of them are supporting varieties. Plants that fix nitrogen. Plants that provide biomass for mulching. Nurse species. And what I mean by a nurse species is something that helps another species grow. If I have a lot of land and I want to grow a lot of black walnut, and I want to do it for the productive walnuts, and I want to do it for the timber, because it's a great timber crop. It grows relatively fast. It's a very high dollar timber. I don't need to clear cut. I can selectively cut, and I can manage a forest with black walnut as a part of it for years and years and years. And once I get it established, when I cut it, it doesn't even look like anything's missing. Now, I'm not going to become a timber baron with this, but I can provide timber for my own use or I can provide timber for sale as part of a way to financially support what I'm doing. Well, you know, one of the great plants to put with black walnut is black locust. Now, it's not going to make beautiful timber, but I can make poles and posts with it and tool handles. But the big thing is it's going to fix nitrogen and it goes together with black walnuts like peanut butter and jelly go together. So it's a nurse species with its own productive values. But I could be planting something with no direct value to me. If I have a lot of land, maybe I have a plant out there like Kentucky coffee tree. Fixes nitrogen, feed for squirrels. Doesn't really do anything directly for me. There is some organic matter I guess I could gather, but any tree would do that. But it all revolves around how much do I want to come out. When do I get to a point where I go... The surplus is sufficient, and now I want to focus on functionality and beauty and ease of maintenance. I've got enough things that are going to provide food, and I'm going to stop. Or if I have a very small property, the, 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 the reverse. How do I maximize everything I plant so I get as much productivity as I possibly can? But be careful with that. You would be shocked what one peach tree in a good year produces. I'm talking... This year, we finally had our first good year from our peach tree. I had the squirrels in check. I had the, the flies in check. I had everything in check. Fourth year, the tree was in the ground. And we got at least 10 five-gallon buckets of peaches. I wish I could tell you we made good use of them all. Some of them rotted. Some of them were given away. It was more than we could deal with. We were traveling right about the time they came to harvest. But it was amazing. Even with, th even with thinning the fruit and pruning, I lost a branch where the fruit weight was too much and the branch snapped off. The tree pruned itself. That's one tree. It's hard to see the production when you put this little thing in the ground. You buy this tree, it's six feet tall, and the very first thing you do is prune it to two and a half feet off the ground. Cut the whole top off it and start building a scaffolding. And you got this little two and a half foot stick. Four years, five years from then. It's a totally different experience. And the amount of fruit can be produced is massive. So we have to think about maximizing and yet not overproducing. Of especially, your total production is one thing, but your production of certain things is another. Uh, I talked to a guy, uh, we were talking about muscadines, because I'm going to be putting a lot of muscadines and conventional grapes in. And uh, I, he said, well, how many muscadine vines are you going to put in? I said initially eight. And uh, he said, yeah, I think I'd like to do that, too. I said, do you make wine? He goes, no, uh, but I'm going to learn. 
So, well, man, you're gonna make a, you gotta understand how much wine ate muscadine vine. You know, you got a healthy, mature muscadine vine four years from now, five years from now, close to a hundred pounds of muscadines. I'm a single vine, 800 pounds. Now, unless you're gonna market sell that, um, which is not, there's not the biggest market in the world for muscadines, especially, you know, if you can line up some home vendors or something like that, but you gotta think, hey, man, You know, he said, well, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to be putting in oak barrels and, and aging it. You know, I said, I, I, I want to have a large uh, wine level of production. That's why I'm also going to grow grapes like Chardonnay, which are like a Chardonnay clone, um, and, and Zinfandel. Uh, the, those are the ones that I want to grow. But I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying really be aware of what you're going to have in the future. Because what might happen is you end up having to completely eliminate a plant and bring something else in because you've done too much of one variety. So that that's just a critical thing to think about is what are your production goals, your desired output. Next is wildlife interactions. If you have a half an acre in the city surrounded by a six-foot privacy fence and every house around you kind of looks like the same thing, suburb, city, even on the edge of the suburbs, but you've got that subdivision layout, You're probably not real worried about white-tailed deer eating your garden. You got dogs in all the neighborhoods, there's streets, there's cars. If you live kind of in an edge habitat where you're in the suburbs but there's no fences and you've got that beautiful backyard that backs up to this woodlot that's never been built on and you're in the northeastern United States, deer candy, baby. That's deer candy. They're going to be moving along those those edges all the time. There's these these subdivisions built like that, they're beautiful. But they're, they're, they're ripe with deer. The hunters aren't allowed into a lot of them, especially rifle hunters for obvious safety concerns. Archery hunters can only take so many. Pablum puking liberals don't think the deer should be shot ever and they should be able to multiply into the billions. And if they starve to death, that's better than being consumed as a resource. And you have these problems. So wherever you are, you have to put wildlife considerations on the table. And this is where the urban grower suburban grower often has an advantage you live out in the country and you have chickens the raccoon is the bane of your existence everybody talks about the fox or the weasel in the hen house nothing and I mean nothing is as big a challenge to protect your poultry from as a raccoon if you build a lake with an island and let your ducks you know, nest on that island for protection it'll keep most coyotes away Uh, it'll keep most foxes away. A raccoon will swim his ass right across that water, climb up on that island, and kill every single duck you have. They'll steal the eggs. Now, are there raccoons in urban environments? Yes. They just tend to be a lot less of a concern for a chicken owner. There's less of them. There's more lighting. They're more happy to... Uh, And they have so much food available from garbage and waste and things like that. I'm not saying the urban chicken farmer never loses a chicken to a raccoon. But I'm telling you, the guy on the farm is a hell of a lot more worried about him. Wildlife considerations. And what wildlife do you want in the area? A lot of people will look at the deer and go, oh my God, the deer will eat everything I have. And then the other person will actually plan an area for the deer. Give them a food plot. Give them a preferred area. Give them easy access to that area and difficult and perceived dangerous access to the area they want to keep them out of. And then the deer become a resource instead of a problem. And if it's your property, put as many arrows and as many deer as you want within reason and within the laws of your state. And deer meet some good eating stuff. 
And when I look at people say, well, what livestock will you have on your property in Arkansas? Well, some of my livestock will be squirrels and deer. They go, that's not livestock, that's wild game. Oh, it's better than wild game, it's livestock. It can be conditioned to use a part of my property. I can allow it to consume resources that I don't need. It's high-quality protein. It's as organic as it gets. I can encourage it without being responsible for it, and I can harvest it within the same way I'd harvest any other resource, but with the permaculture ethic of self-regulation. I'm not going to harvest all of it because I want it to continue to grow and thrive. But unlike the cow I have to take care of, the deer will wander off my property, and I can't guarantee that it, the individual will come back, but I can create a condition where some portion of the herd will always be using a part of my property that I set aside for them. So it's about keeping out pest wildlife and managing and encouraging wildlife that you want to be part of your system and finding the line between the two of them. This includes you urban growers that think you don't have to worry about because your wildlife includes insects. So providing predator habitat. So just like to protect your chickens, you might go out and buy a great dog for that, which would be a great Pyrenees. Even a cross, like a lab Pyrenees cross, just wonderful dogs. They'll lay their life down to defend a chicken. They really will if they're trained right. And if you have a good, great Pyrenees running around on your property, uh, the, the fox, raccoon, what have you, ain't getting near your chicken pen. They ain't getting near your, your, your flock of ducks. That dog will live and breathe to protect those animals. So that's one countermeasure. But for the city dweller that says, well, I don't have to worry about the, the raccoon. Well, what about the aphids? What about um, the cutworms? What about squash vine borers? What about the squash bugs? What about the stink bugs? What about the Japanese beetles? Those are all wildlife. Instead of seeing them as pests, we need to understand what they are. They're wildlife. They have a pattern. And, and the one good thing about aphids is they're food for ladybugs. And ladybugs kill all kinds of other pests as well. So aphids are only a problem when they exist at a number where they can do damage beyond what's acceptable. You ain't. You, I love it when somebody plants corn. I love this. Well, what'd you plant? I planted 48 corn plants. Oh, that's cool. And then they say, I'm going to get 96 cor cobs of corn. And I just laugh when I hear that. Or, you know, I planted 10 pepper plants and I should get 15 plant peppers per plant. Well, I'm going to get 150 peppers. That's counting your chickens before they hatch, folks. You're going to lose some. But just like the, the, the homestead around the country that uh, has the great Pyrenees to defend his wildlife and to chase the deer away from his, his vegetable garden, and the plot where the Pyrenees stays out of that is for the deer, the urban gardener has the little pile of flowering herbs and plants put together that pretty much runs rabid that's for the pollinators and the predators as a home habitat so that the ladybugs will be there to eat the aphids and the lacewings will be there to kill the cutworms and the soil is conditioned so that there's beneficial nematodes and predators for the, for the, 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 the harmful nematodes, the pest nematodes and everything in balance So we have to take wildlife interactions in a deep consideration. It's not just about deer and raccoons. It's about every living creature that has access to your property. Do I want to encourage it, discourage it, eliminate it, or work with it?
just like energy. Isn't that interesting? The next one is your zones. I want to talk a little bit about zones and layers today. Just in case you haven't heard my shows on it before, you can listen to my shows on zones and layers if you want to, to go deeper into the concept. But zoning is something with no hard, fast rule. No permaculture designer is going to come to your property and say, well, if you have an acre, then zone one is the tenth of an acre closest to your house. The zone will change based on access, the slope of the land, the way that the energy flows, what your goals are, what have you. But basically it works like this. Zone zero is inside your home. That's zero. That's where you are. It's where you live. As soon as you exit your dwelling, you're in zone one on some level. How big that zone one is is up to you. But zone one is where your plantings are, are, are irrigated and mulched and cared for. There could be even dwarf trees, semi-dwarf trees, vines. It could almost look like a jungle in some designs. And in some designs, it's an herb garden and low-growing annuals and low-growing perennials and a, and a vegetable garden. And your kitchen garden is going to be in zone one with a good design. That's a rule. A herb garden is going to be in zone one with a good design. And you're going to have mulching and irrigation in zone one. You might have irrigation in zone two, but you will have it in, in zone one. Unless you live in a place where everything is so moist that you don't really need it. And then you're going to be designing it so things like your roof runoff is harvested. So it's irrigation, but it's passive. It's Maybe it's not active like a, like a drip line. But if you're going to use drip irrigation, it's going to be in zone one. Might be out in two and three, but it will be in one. Just so that makes sense. Zone two, my mulching's a little bit rougher. I'm going to have my larger trees. Zone three, you get into your big piece of land. You've, this is where you've got your conventional farm crops and maybe your cattle and things like that. Zone four, you're getting to edge forestry. You're getting into a managed food forest. And then zone five, you're going into farm forestry, which is the, the wilderness. Now, obviously, you don't have a lot of wilderness on your property in suburbia. You got a tenth of an acre lot having a full five zones. Probably not really what you need to be doing. You can still have a wilderness area. You can have a little four square meter area. You just let it go. You'd be amazed what that can do for the predator population. But it's not in the traditional sense of zone five. So your home might have three zones. Mine might have four. You see what I mean? You adjust it as needed. But it's more about the way that it makes you think about your design. So everything in zone one is stuff that I'm going to be touching almost daily or at least weekly. I'm going to take the most trips a year inside zone one. So all the things I'm going to use a lot of or that need my care are in zone one. And the less care and the less trips I'm going to take, the further out in the zone plan they go. So my firewood may be in zone two or three, where I keep my firewood stacked. Why? Well, I only use it when I'm heating the home in the winter. And it's a little bit unsightly. My compost pile may be at the edge of the zone one, zone two overlap, or in the zone two. It's completely really up to you. But by thinking about this, we make the maximum amount of efficiency in our landscape. And the things that we need to spend the most time on are closest to our, our property. Layers are really about how you plant and the interactions plant has with each other. And I'm going to go real fast through layers today just to give you an overview, and you can get deeper into them with my other shows if you want to. Layers are simple. Every plant occupies a layer. We start out with the canopy layer. Those are our biggest trees. Now, in a suburban backyard, our canopy layer may be a semi-dwarf tree. 
It may be a tree that's only 12 feet tall. It's all relative. In a true forest, it may be a hundred feet or several hundred feet up. But it's the big trees, the climax layer, as it's called. From there, we step down to the subtree layer. And these are the understory trees. Or the trees that are just smaller based on where they're growing. They're closer to the edge, closer to the fields. So in a suburban backyard, this may be semi-dwarf trees and true dwarf trees. And I can actually create a food forest in a, in a, in a half-acre yard this way. So I have the I take my sun flow, and I go, okay, over here on this property line, I get good solar exposure, but the sun comes from the other side. So I'm going to put my semi-dwarfs to the rear. And in between them and a little bit further front, I'm going to plant my, semi, my, my, my true dwarf trees. And then I come into what's called a shrub layer. So this is where I'm going to plant things like my gooseberries and pomegranates and things like that. Blackberries and raspberries. So instead of having a raspberry patch, my raspberry patches are, my raspberry patch is integrated into my dwarf tree layer next to a gooseberry. Just like a jungle, just like a forest. And I come from my, my, my shrub layer down into my herbaceous layer. My herbaceous layer are annuals and perennial herbs mostly, especially in suburbia. But it's any plant that would be considered not a shrub or a, a bush or a vine or a tree. Anything really technically is herbaceous if it's not a tree. Okay, So that's any of my plantings, my low plantings. And then from there, I have additional layers that are often not thought about. One is my climbers, my vertical layer. So this could be things like a maypop vine, a Native American passion fruit, hardy up into the northeastern United States. That could be growing up my trees and then making use of that. Uh, crawling, uh, climbing beans could be planted into my, into my trees and allowed to climb up my trees. And they're going to fix nitrogen. I have a good positive interaction there. And then I'm going to look at my rhizomal layer. These are my tube, my root and tuber crops, like sweet potato like traditional potatoes, like ginseng would be a, a root yield. Uh, if I have water in my system, taro root would be another root yield. And anything that produces a root yield, um, again, just anything that produces a yield below the surface. And then I have my ground cover layer. My ground cover layer could be things like strawberries. It could be a creeping ivy that covers the ground and then becomes a, a vining layer. These things overlap. There's not really hard fixed rules. But anything that spreads out across the ground and creates a natural living mulch is a ground cover layer. And, and some of them do double duty. So sweet potato is a, is a tube yield. And, and the part that grows above the ground, we're not going to eat that. But it does act as a living mulch. It spreads out and it grows. So it's a ground cover. So it occupies two layers. And as we start to think about that, we start to realize that now instead of just building this square flat system like most suburban designs do, we have all this vertical space that we're working with. And we're stacking the system not just horizontally, but horizontally and vertically. So if we actually were to look at the total biomass that we're growing, we would pull it out, it would look like a sloped pyramid. One side straight and one side sloped. And the sloped side is facing the, the, the primary solar radiation that's available to us. And the biomass we're producing in the same horizontal space is 10 or maybe even 50-fold 
the biomass that we would produce if we just looked at it in one dimension. It's an exponential increase by understanding the layered system. So when we're designing, we need to think about every aspect of space and how that energy flows so that when we do plant our largest trees, they go to the point furthest away from where the sun is actually coming from. And so we build forward from there. If we do that, it's much easier to modify things than when we go have this great, beautiful, big sunny spot. That's a great place for an apple tree. And five years later, it's shading half of the property. And maybe to put it on the other side of the property, it gets a little less sun in the beginning, but we have to remember it's a tree that's going to go 12, 14 feet. And once that can once it's up there in that canopy space, is the sun up there? And if as long as it's up there, we can grow the tree to the sun. Now we can't put it in a place where it gets no sunlight at all for its first five years of life, but we have to think to the future. And we have to think with layers to that. We also need to think, what is our time to develop the system? Are we on a property that we're only going to live in for three or four years? Well, we want to think a little bit about the future owners, but we don't want to make the investment that we would on a property we plan to live on 10 years or 20 years or for the rest of our lives. And we're going to want to plant things that we're going to get some benefit from short term. So we're going to want to focus a lot more on annuals and perennial herbs. And we're going to want to focus a lot more on vines and bushes and shrubs than trees. Now maybe we still put a few trees in, but they're kind of like we're doing that as a, a goodwill investment for the future owner. And what we're really focused on is the things that we can get up to production so that when we put the property up for sale in two to four years, we're not just ha- not, we haven't just gained from it, from the yield, we have something to sell. Instead of the property owner coming out and looking at a few fruit, fruit trees that are still relatively small and not producing, we have all of these other things where the, the new property owner looks at it and goes, this is a productive system. I can cut my grocery bill by buying this house. The guy down the street offered me a homeowner's warranty, but it's not going to feed my family. So we have to look at the time to develop very critically. And we have to think, if it's a short development time period, then we need to be thinking about getting it to something that's very marketable at the end of that term. If it's a long duration, a lifetime investment, We need to think about making the ultimate climax system that we can for ourselves and whoever we will will the property to. Time to maintain is extremely important. If you are a person that works 60 hours a week, I think you need a career change. I I used to be a guy that worked 80 hours a week, so I understand it might take some time. But I think you're probably headed for an early grave if you keep doing that for the rest of your life. But while you're doing it, Having a a very large annual garden doesn't make sense for you. It's going to require time and effort that you probably don't have to give to it. You probably need a small one because working on it uh, an hour a day will probably keep you from snapping out and going postal someday or having your heart explode. I think if everybody in America would grow a small garden in a few trees and bushes and touch the earth and smell it and eat, eat from it and produce from it, We would put most psychologists and psychiatrists out of business. 
We would destroy the psychotropic drug industry. We would get our kids off of Ritalin. And it's not just about the nutrition, damn it. That's not what I'm saying. I want you to understand, the kids in America today are not on Ritalin and Prozac and other, every other piece of, of narcotic crap that the teachers and, and parents and doctors are putting into them just because they drink soda pop and eat Big Macs. When I was a kid, we drank soda pop and ate Big Macs, and there were very few kids on any of these drugs. It's because they're disconnected with being freaking human, and their parents are disconnected with being human, and in some cases, the grandparents are disconnected with being human. And if you take a creature and put it into a foreign environment for long enough, it will domesticate to that environment, but eventually it will reach a point where it's only gonna, it can't go any further, and it tries to revert, and it can't, and it's gonna cause stress, and angst, and anxiety, and that animal will live a less fulfilling and shorter life. Will you do the same thing? And one of the big reasons I talk about this, It's because it will free your mind and your soul and your spirit from the trap that is modern America and modern corporatism. It will change your priorities. I don't, and this is what I started out about. If we want to change the system, we must focus on the individual and what the individual can do and what the individual can do that creates progress. But if we're going to do it, we have to be realistic. And the guy that works 60 hours a week doesn't have 25 hours a week to dedicate to his landscape. That's why he's hired some day laborers to do it for him through a guy down the street that, and, and he probably is out upset about illegal aliens and his landscaper employs them. I'm not coddling illegal aliens. I'm just making a point here. The irrationality of modern America. I want a great big lawn that's always green. But I don't want to work on it. And it'll provide nothing for me. I'll have to pay to water it. I'll have to pay to fertilize it. I'll have to pay to keep weeds out of it. I'll pay somebody to keep it cut for me so it's always two and a half inches tall. And I'll get nothing in return other than my yard's greener than Joe's. And it's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. And to me, it is one of the things literally destroying the American way of life. But we have to think about how long we have to work on these things. Or it's not going to happen. And you're better off working a half hour a day for a little results than, believe, than, than building a system that requires five hours a day and having it fail. Stage into things. And this is another reason to focus on bushes, trees, shrubs. You put a tree in, you prune it. Next year, you prune it again. As long as it gets watered and cared for, it's good. Like all the other non-productive trees in America, only your tree will eventually produce for you. You put in a blackberry bush, you, you prune it once a year. You put in a grapevine, you prune it once a year. You put in a kiwi vine, you prune it once a year. So you have to think about how much time do I actually have to work on this. And how many people, you know, with, with, with time, the other thing I should have put in there was, how many people will be working on it? If you and your wife are doing it, and you each only have a half hour a day, well, that's fine. Now you have seven hours a week. That's a big difference in three and a half. And we'll both commit to it. Will the kids help? 
And remember, until kids learn what to do, they're not as helpful as you'd like them to be. You need them in their learning. It's better than Ritalin. It's better than Ritalin. A garden will cure ADD. Because it will give the child an opportunity to connect with reality. Our kids are on this dope, not due to soda pop. I'm not saying that getting them off soda pop won't help. But it's more about a disconnect from reality. It's a it's a world where Nintendo and and, and and MTV have replaced mom and the dinner table. And we need to reconnect with that. The last thing we have to really, not really the last thing, this is one of the first things we need to think about, but the last thing on my list for you today is the availability of water. How much rain do you get? A lot of people say, I live in a dry area. You look up their climate and they get 28 inches of rainfall a year. Uh, 28 inches of rainfall. And if you look at how much rain, look at your yard and imagine it water 28 inches deep completely covering every square inch of your yard. And then realize that that same amount exists up on your roof in every hard surface. It's a lot of rainfall. It's not as dry as you think it is. If we do the things we talked about, like determining our slope, putting in swales, practicing hugel culture, water conservation, making the water take the longest path off of our property. But we also want to think about other things. What kind of water do we have available? Do we have city water? Do we have a well? How much does the water cost us? Uh, how reasonable is it to put, you know, automated irrigation systems, and I'm a big fan of them. If we can eliminate irrigation, great. But in other areas, if we're going to need drip irrigation, let's put it in. But we have to think about water availability. And we have to think about water availability, and I put it last for a reason. It seems like the first thing that most people think of. I want you to think about it differently today. Instead of just thinking about, how do I get water to my plants, I want you to think about water availability in conjunction with your climate, the slope of your property, the energy patterns on your property, the total land area you're dealing with, the desired output that you have for your property, the interaction with wildlife on your property, the zoning of your property where you spend your most and least time on the property, the layered system in your property and its requirements of water, how long you're going to take to develop your system, how long you have on a daily basis to maintain your system. Watering with a hose is very workable. It's very doable if you have a lot of time to maintain your system. It's very, you know, it's it's very, it's actually very um, conservationist to water with a hose. People don't think it is, but it is. I put the water exactly where I want it at the exact amount that's necessary at the exact intervals that I need, and I don't waste any water at all. All the water goes where I want it to go. But what are my time considerations now? If I don't, if I'm that 60, 80 hour week guy, I may not have the time to go out there and water for an hour or an hour and a half or on a big spread two hours a day. It might be good for me, but I may not be able to pull it off. So when you think about water availability in the future, bring in all the other components and you'll look at it in a totally different way. And the end result is instead of me guilting you into being a water conservationist by doing smart practical design that takes into account your needs, You'll conserve water. Instead of me trying to tell you you're going to save the polar bear by growing more trees, you'll grow more trees because there's an immediate positive result for you. 
And this is where the worlds of environmentalism and practicality actually overlap. And if instead of spending all our time in class warfare bullshit, we actually spend the time doing the things that are most productive for ourselves and our neighbors, we wouldn't have any arguments like this whatsoever because we'd live in a more healthy, more natural world. See how it all dovetails together? And then the big thing... I, you know, this is the Survival Podcast, and you might feel like now that we're done for the day, you just listen to the Gardening Podcast. First thing you're going to do when you start prepping, one of the first things is you're going to store food. Why? Because it's more important than bullets and guns. Doesn't mean you shouldn't have bullets and guns. But I've been in very few physical confrontations in my lifetime, and I've had to eat every single day of my life. And a lot of disaster preparedness is disaster mitigation and disaster prevention. If we create a stable food system throughout America, a self-producing, sustainable system, where the person that grows food isn't unusual, but just like it was in 1900, the person that doesn't go grow food, that's the unusual. It's like, well, you don't have anything like that in your property? What's wrong with you? We make that paradigm shift... And a lot of the things we're concerned about either go away or become less severe. Even if the, and people say, well, what if this area is hit with some disaster that wipes out everybody's production? Well, it's a hell of a lot easier for the guy in the neighboring state or county or city to donate to the person that's been afflicted when they have more surplus. The more we have, the more we can give. The more we can give, the more, more disasters we can mitigate or prevent. And the more we have, the more disasters we can ride through on our own. But like I answered the one person yesterday, having a can full of seeds on a shelf in case you need them won't do this. Get involved. Get in the game. Unlike the person who emailed me yesterday, I am a lot more optimistic about America than he is. I believe that if I teach you to grow food and you do it just a little bit, it will increase your chances for survival. And it will increase our nation's chances for survival. And I believe the best thing you can do for your children today is teach them that food does not come in plastic packaging. It comes from blood, sweat, tears, and joy shed into the earth. And that every meal that they ever eat, ever, somebody exerted a lot so that they could eat. And the only way you're going to know that is if occasionally what you're eating You're the person that produced it. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
Yeah.